friend. Welcome back to another episode of International Immersion, a podcast that seeks to capture the combined experiences of people, places, culture, traveling, current events, living abroad, history, and everything that comes along with them. For today's episode, I wanted to take a little bit of a departure from my normal premise, but one of which that heavily influences international immersion. So thinking about this, I wanted to go into depth on historical events and situations that have influenced the world and people that live in it that we still feel to this day. And a great start to accomplish this would to be focused on an event at the time was considered extremely unpredictable and was like an atomic bomb going off. And that was the rise of Islam and Muslim expansion in the seventh century or about 1400 years ago. So, but to better do this, I've actually brought a brought on one of my former classmates who is also a trained historian and together we're going to break this down and this is going to be part one of a two-part series where we cover this period of history so Rachel it's great to have you on today yeah absolutely thank you for having me perfect you know I've been excited to do this it's uh something that will be I think is interesting and there's so much that we have to cover on this but I think we'll accomplish it and just to kind of start off with maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself sure absolutely um, Sean and I met at one of our classes and we were both excited to be historians and uh, that was fantastic. <laughs> so I'm an alumni of SIUE and I have a bachelor's in historical studies and minors in religious studies and classical studies, which is kind of where I came to um, just become fascinated with the rise of Islam and learning about um, what they believe, how they came to be, the history of Muhammad and the um, Arabic people going from nomads to a dominating force that um, is still relevant today. It's still it's still here. It's not going anywhere. And uh, when Sean asked about uh, coming on and talking about something that's interesting and that, you know, I know a lot about, I was like, absolutely. So uh, thank you again, Sean, for having me. <laughs> My pleasure. And it's, you know, this is the first episode I've had you on. So I'm really excited to get your input and specifically go into this topic. So proceeding from here, this episode, we're going to cover first a little on the situation in the Mediterranean, in the, you know, Middle East prior to the rise of Islam and kind of give a bit of a backdrop to what happened, what empires and entities, you know, rose and fell and, and set the stage for the later Muslim expansion. And then after that, we're going to kind of go into a bit of a kind of a a summary of how Islam kind of became the dominant force in Arabia. Rachel's going to be take lead on that. Then we're going to talk about the initial early phase of their conquests into the Levant and Mesopotamia in those regions specifically. So to begin with, I think it's important to kind of lay the groundwork in that I think this period of history is very interesting because up until this point, there had been almost a status quo in the region for many, many centuries. And when this happened, it was like, as mentioned previously, a bomb going off that completely rewrote the situation, balance of power, everything in less than a century. Yeah, it took a a very short amount of time for a lot to happen and that entire area of the world to just uh, completely, completely change. Exactly. So to begin with, the situation in the Mediterranean world, in the Mideast, 
before the rise of the, you know, the caliphate and the Islamic entity that would, you know, start and then succeed each other. Basically, you had for over seven centuries, you had two dominant powers in the region. You had the Persians and you had the Romans. They met initially in the first century BC. Everyone knows the famous Battle of Cara, where the Parthians destroyed seven legions under uh, Marcus Licinius Crassus. And that initiated nearly 700 years of on and off warfare between the two states. And eventually the Roman Empire fell, but the Eastern half survived and became the Eastern Roman Empire or what we call now the Byzantine Empire. And then the Parthian Empire fell and was replaced by the Sasanian Empire. And those powers continued warring up until the rise of Islam. And it's actually interesting in the fact that in many cases, they themselves laid the groundwork for why the Muslims were so successful when they began to conquer. But that is a little bit of too much of a right. foreshadowing at this point, but this is going to be very important later on at the time. Yeah. So basically, before this period, you had, you know, the Achaemenid Persian Empire, which was the first really expansive empire, which was then crushed by Alexander the Great and his Macedonian Empire, which then fractured into the Diadochi, which were the different generals of Alexander who then fought for supremacy over the realm. And that in many cases weakened the realm and you and that allowed the the Parthians, which were an Indo-Iranian people to come in and basically take over modern day Iran, parts of Afghanistan and Central Asia. And eventually they pushed all the way into to modern day Levant. And then at the same time, you have the Roman Republic expanding, fighting wars against the Gauls, against the uh, Pontus, the Greeks and everything, and a lot of other peoples in that region. And eventually the two, the two powers met and initially it was more symbiotic, but as with any time two large powers come into proximity, there's going to be something that snaps sooner or later. And that's what happened in 53 BC at the Battle of Karai. And then that initiated successive wars from then on. Now, kind of going further on, eventually they, Rachel, you would say the two powers eventually established a bit of a basically the borders calcified neither power really had the strength to fully subjugate the other right yeah they they couldn't take over each other they didn't have the means necessary at that point so it was kind of a more or less a stalemate at that point exactly and basically you had a lot of wars where basically nothing changed hands or the the per, the, 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 par, the the parthians or sasanians would capture a few roman towns and then the romans would pay them to to move out or vice versa, but, but generally the borders calcified along basically modern day Mesopotamia and Armenia. Armenia became the big hedge between the two powers and they both tried to gain more influence in Armenia and Armenia did change hands between them as more of a vassal state or influential state many times in this in these seven centuries, which it's hard to believe, how can you fight for seven centuries? But I wanna clarify, it wasn't one seven century long war, it was many small wars in this period. Now, going on with this, what's also interesting is that in modern day, you know, in the in north northern Arabia, both powers eventually had vassal states that were actually, you know, Arab in, in their identity. The Romans or Byzantines in around the third century, they got a group called the Ghassanids, which were Christian Arabs that lived outside the Roman, Roman Empire, or Byzantine Empire, if you want to call it. And they basically were a buffer state between them, other Arab states, and then the Sasanians. And the Sasanians, in turn, had their own 
basically vast estate called the Lachmids, and these two entities would support each empire in facing each other, and they'd fight each other and other Arab tribes. So basically, they these acted as buffer states, which both perfected, pr- protected both empires from each other, but also from other Arab states that not affiliated with either empire. So Rachel, would you say that this actually in many ways for more than three centuries kind of helped keep the balance, but also added to the complexity? Right, yeah, the, the balance of power is, a, it teetered one way, then would teeter the other way, but then neither would be able to, to win over just completely. And with that kind of in motion of no one winning, there was that kind of Mediterranean peace almost, and also helped towards the eventual rise of Islam. Um, Cause there, there wasn't any like true large power that they had to overcome because there was two, two or three powers at one time, nobody, it wasn't the entire Roman Empire. It was a, a section of it versus um, other smaller, larger powers, per se. Exactly, and I'd also I'd also say is that when the Roman Empire in its entirety was still intact and the Parthians were still intact, the Romans were definitely the more of the superior power over the Parthians, and it was more the distance, logistics, and other factors that prevented the Romans from taking them over. But when the Sasanians overthrew the Parthians. After the Battle of Morsgan in the sick in the in the late two hundred in the mid two hundreds, that's the Sasanian Empire that replaced it was became a much more powerful Persian dynasty that was was able to fight the Romans and then later the Byzantines on equal term, and that actually made the situation even more I would say balanced because either both powers were basically just basically smashing their heads against each other for seven centuries without much effect, which. Sounds ludicrous, but, you know, dynastic politics, you know, I want this, you want that. <laughs> Human nature yeah. at its best, especially power at its best. <laughs> right. And they, they didn't, they weren't really bothering other people besides each other and leaving that entire Saudi Arabia, um, Arab nobads by themselves. I mean, they're just doing their own thing. They're not. Re- exactly. Those powers you know- aren't reaching down, Exactly. Like they did, they never extended direct influence. Now they had extensive trade networks, yes, and uh, yeah. cultural influence. Like the, the, the Sasanians actually had some colonies or provinces in Arabia that were more that they could either control directly or indirectly. And that actually would cause tension with them in the Lachmids in the early 600s. There's a battle in 609 at Deir Kar where the, they actually defeated the Sassanid army, although the Sassanids did remain, did maintain control over Latin territory. But that would, that kind of showed you the tenuous relationship between the two, two, even though they're technically allies, both them and the Sassanids and the Gassanids and the Byzantines or Romans, they did have their fair share of issues with each other, <laughs> to say the least. Right. And that kind of leads into the one event that really kind of set the stage for this. And that was, the byzantine sasanian war of 602-628 this differed in that this by far was the most destructive conflict between the two empires and by and as a result it basically weakened both empires existentially just because of the damage and the losses incurred for pretty much nothing at the end of the war everything went back to normal and this basically was sparked Previously, in the late 500s, when the Roman Empire, or the Byzantine Emperor Maurice assisted um, the the, Sasan- the Sasanian uh, Shah Khazar II, who had been overthrown by a usurper, 
to retain, regain control of his empire. So basically, in return, he handed over some lands and allied with the Byzantine Emperor under Maurice. Well, when Maurice was usurped, the Sasanians considered him an ally, so they declared war on the new, new Byzantine Empire Emperor, uh, and then you basically have it, the start of this war. Now, what happened is at first, the Sasanians enjoyed a lot of success. So basically, uh, they moved in, they managed to take control of a lot of of Anatolia, modern-day Turkey. They managed to take over Levant and even took control of Egypt. And basically, the Byzantine Empire was looking, at this point, they look like they're about to be history. But you have a very famous person from history uh, named Heraclius. He was the ex exarch of North Africa at the time, and he rebelled against the, the previously Serpian Emperor Phocas, who deposed Maurice, and he took control in Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul, and basically, over a period of a couple of years, set, reset the situation. And basically, the, the Persians, actually, with the help of the Avars and Slavs, besieged Constantinople in 626, but they were able to be withdrawn. And, and Heraclius raised a new army, and he basically marched through Anatolia and the uh, Caucasus, defeating several Persian armies. And then he then was able to get a alliance with the East Western Turkish Cognate, which were basically like, uh, there are many entities in the steppes, modern day Russia and further, he was basically able to get an alliance with them and, and 40,000 of them along with him invaded the Persian heartland. And finally, the, and the Persians to their, their, uh, to their character, since this was the last really strong Byzantine army with the emperor, if they defeated it, they think they could have won. And so they made a lot of rash decisions and that's how he was able to defeat them piece by piece. And finally, he marched down toward their capital in modern day Iraq called Tessaphon and he defeated the, the Sasanians at the Battle of Minvia and crushed a good portion of their army. So this was kind of the last straw. The Sasanians over, overthrew Khazar and replaced him with his son, Kabad II, who signed a peace agreement with the Byzantines in 628. And then as mentioned, everything returned to normal the, the, the Sasanians gave back all the stuff that they had, they had conquered or looted from the Romans, and basically things went back to a status quo. But as a result, as previously mentioned, it basically didn't destroy each empire, but basically brought each empire to its knees, wouldn't you say? Yes, yeah. They, they wouldn't be able to fight what's about to come at all. Exactly. Now, you know, the you know, and despite all this, their organization, organization, their infrastructure, and a lot of their systems were still intact, just greatly diminished. And of course, after any large war or defeat, there's always internal politics. Heraclius was able to maintain control. There was plenty of, of intrigue in the Byzantine court, but the empire generally stayed in, in a decent position. It was just exhausted and was reclaiming its former frontiers, which had lost the, 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 the Persians and reasser, reasserting control. Unfortunately for the Sasanians, this created a huge <laughs> roundabout thing of internal fighting. So basically, in the wake of the war, uh, Kavad, Kavad II began murdering, murdering his siblings to secure the throne. This caused a lot of turmoil, and when he died of plague in February of 628, that created a power vacuum. So he initially he was succeeded by his his son Ardisher III, with, but his vizier was the one really behind the power of the throne, which in many cases, whenever a young ruler ascends, that's always the case. And of course, 
factionalism in the court. This offended one of the factions and the famous Persian general from, from the war called Sharbaraz. He marched to the capital in, of Tesfahan in 630, captured it and killed, killed Ardashir and his vizier. And as a result, Shabaraz then took mantle of Shah, which still a term that they used up until the Iranian revolution in 1979. And he took control of his power or took control of the realm. And then literally just 40 days after him becoming Shah, he was assassinated by an influential member of the Persian party in Farouk. And that Farouk Hormizd, who then raised Khazar II's daughter, Boran, to the throne. And then literally just a few months later, Shar, the, the son of Sharbaraz marched with his army from central Iran and overthrew Boron. So eventually, Farouk, seeing kind of the issues going on, he tried to uh, create a marriage between Shapur, uh, Sharbaraz's son, and the other daughter of Khazar named Azamaradidat. The name kind of, sorry if I butchered that to anyone who's from that region, but I apologize. Well, Shapur refused, and the noble Farouk usurped the throne in 630. And then he was then killed by supporters of Amazari Dot, who he supported in 631, who then took the throne. And this caused Farouk's son, Rostam, to march his army towards Tesiphon and defeated Amazariot's army and restored Boran to the throne. <laughs> so you're seeing a lot of internal issues. And actually what's interesting is one of the latter events, the two armies refused to fight each other because they were so fed up with this and they forced a forced basically a compromise between some of these generals because they're like i'm not i mean i think that's just kind of common sense at this point if you're right. the, the average rank and file and then after that you have another influential member of one of the parties peruse had to step in to stop hostilities and then literally <laughs> after rostam left peruse marched the capital killed boron and basically and restored it and took to control this event. So then Rostam marched back furious as ever. And eventually this is when you have the event where the two armies basically were like enough's enough. And they refused to fight and agreed for both sides to come to terms. So since they both coveted the throne, they basically had to make a compromise. And that resulted in one of the last members of the house of the son, the um, grandson of Khosrow II, Yazdegard became Shah's Yazdegard III. So, and this is in 632 now. So you finally have calm kind of re, being reestablished in the Sasanian Empire. But all of this caused a lot of turmoil because you had a lot of men die in battle. You had disruption of supply, supplies, you know, infrastructure. And basically the Sasanian Empire this time was very fragile because literally within the next year, you would start to see the first incursions by the new Muslim caliphate. So... I know that was a lot to digest, but basically in a nutshell, you're seeing that a long scale war and internal fighting can do more damage than really anything else to an empire or a state. There's not much coming back from that of uh, once the, the infighting starts, uh, they're not going to be able to come back from that. Exactly. And I would argue that m many times most empires are brought down by infighting. External forces are, are a large factor, but infighting, I think, is the most detrimental. Right. I was just going to say, it's kind of like the phrase, uh, you are your own worst enemy. A lot of times, uh, the empire, whatever empire it is, they're their own worst enemy in the long run. Exactly. You know, the desire for power, in a, in a way, is basically destroys the power of the state if it's not mitigated or 
kept in balance, which is almost impossible because of human nature. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> that, that, and that leads us to our first transition point. And that is now going back in time a little bit to the Arabian Peninsula. And um, Rachel, this is kind of your area of expertise. So we get, so perhaps now we can kind of talk about what was going on in the early 600s while the two empires were basically just beating themselves to death. What was going on in Arabia at that time? Right. Uh, so at this time, um, we're going to, I guess I'll just start with uh, at 570 when Muhammad is born. And uh, that is the year of the elephant, which eventually that becomes a big thing in Islam. It's seen as a divine intervention, which has a whole thing with, it's called the war of the elephants, basically, in Yemen. And then that. Basically, a small war is stopped because of birds and elephants. That's the year <laughs> was born and later becomes kind of a important, important thing in Islam. Then skipping ahead a little bit, we have young merchant Muhammad not really doing much of anything. There is no Islam at this point. There is no, it's just Arab nomads, mostly peaceful. Um, there's the Umayyads who are later will become the Umayyad Caliphate. But at this point, because there's no Islam, they're just a, a tribe of Arabs. That's and interesting because they, they think that when he was a merchant, he probably visited the Byzantine Empire and other, maybe even this, in some of those regions through his, you know, through his work as a merchant because right. there was a lot of trade networks that went from that area up into the Levant, then controlled by the Byzantines. Right. Yeah. So who knows where um, Muhammad has been and what he's seen. And then when he later starts to have his visions and whatnot, there's the uh, the big, the two, not houses or anything, but the two tribes in Arabia at that point is the Umayyads and the Hashemites. And the Hashemites are actually run by Muhammad's uncle, Abu Talib. And uh, this guy plays an important role because as Muhammad rises and becomes more popular, he's protected by the Hashemite leader, which if he wasn't, who knows, <laughs> Muhammad might have been squashed if he didn't have very influential people in that the Arab nomad world protecting him. Yeah, it's always good to have someone influential who's a relative. It tends to really work right. out for you. And that yeah. this can be seen in so many examples throughout history. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, so on top of that, uh, so he has his uncle is the um, leader of the Hashemites. And he, Muhammad, eventually marries a widow who is a very successful merchant. She runs her own business. And she's a little bit older than Muhammad also. Her name is Kudashah. Pretty sure that is the correct pronunciation. If it's not, I'm sorry. I googled it, but still, you never know. And they, he starts working for her as a merchant, and then they eventually get married. So he has two influential people now: the head of the Hashemites, and now a very popular, rich merchant wife. And Muhammad becomes he kind of uh, takes care of all the money for her and starts running the business for her, and then. A little bit down the line now, we've hit uh, kind of more into the 600s officially, 610 to be specific. Muhammad realizes that the um, Murwa, Murwa, which is, it's not, it's an Arabic saying. Um, 
it's pre-Islamic, but basically he says that um, everybody is so obsessed with wealth that uh, they become selfish and he starts to become concerned for the Arabic people and uh, everybody around him. And he, he goes, he goes to a cave and has a vision in 610. And this would be what's called the first revelation. Uh, the first thought in on Islam happens in this cave. The, so he comes back from this cave. He tells uh, his wife and she decides to support him. And again, she's super powerful. She's, she's super rich. If he gets her support, then whatever comes of this idea of Islam will be, will be, have a help in being successful. Yeah, one and, good example of like, it may not just immediately click, but it's going to get people to listen just because of the weight of someone's position, authority, or so, you know, if it had just right. been him without anyone, hey, I had this vision, that, that people were going like, oh yeah, that's great, bye. Potentially. Right. <laughs> yeah, it was like, he could have just been somebody screaming in the streets about, you know, who knows what of like doomsday and judgment and stuff. But instead he has, he has two variable put in, uh, influential people backing him and believing him and that leads to well and then also on top of that the idea of Islam comes from it idealizes the middle class and the majority of the Arab people are middle class so with that pop the idea of popularizing it Islam eventually starts to uh, make a rise more and more people more of the Arab nomads start to agree with Muhammad and as he's preaching about judgment day uh, which would happen at Mecca but then there's the group that is against the Hashemites uh, the Umayyads and they're actually the most against Muhammad because um, it's basically saying the rich are bad the rich need to give all their stuff away and should help the lower classes and stuff like that. And the Umayyads are like, no, we, we don't want to do that. You're he's this Islamic idea is disrupting the small balance in the Arab nomad tribes. So Muhammad gets, he gets enough people to uh, follow him. And eventually this becomes enough of a, a rising problem than anything. And the Umayyads want to, they want to do something about it. But unfortunately with this also comes with the death of the two people protecting Muhammad. Uh, so Abu Talib and Kudushu both die in 619, about nine years after his first revelation on Islam. The Umayyads want to chase this uh, community of Islams, which are called the Ummah, out of Mecca. I was going to say Medina, and I was like, they haven't gotten to Medina yet. So the, the Umayyads want to chase them out of Mecca, and... They believe that at this point it's called Yathrib, which later will become Medina, is going to be their oasis. So these uh, the Islamic people are just trying to get out. So they go to Yathrib, which is made up of uh, two Arab tribes and three Jewish tribes. So it gets it's it's a little dicey for a while. They make it to Mecca. They make it from Mecca to Medina and they have some slight problems because they realize they don't know how to farm. They don't really know how to do anything besides trade. So there's a little unrest there, but the amount of people joining Islam is getting larger and larger and larger. So they've gone from a small tribe of people who 
are following Muhammad to large masses, uh, lots of tribes uh, following, and eventually the two Arab tribes will um, fall under Muhammad and follow Islam. Eventually, Yathrib will become, uh, will start being called Medina. There's a little bit more, there's some more trouble with the three Jewish tribes, and uh, Muhammad deals with it. Um, They start raiding Meccan caravans to survive with the trouble of not being able to farm and not being good at anything. They start to raid caravans and steal stuff. They also, they, um, also say that it's uh, Allah's uh, uh, provision for them, uh, Allah being the term for God in Arabic. This is his will, and for them, the Islamic people to survive, they're going to start uh, just stealing stuff. But and, they the, and this is the period where you start seeing the rival, more of the tension building up because raiding and other things, and you start to see a coalition formed to try to defeat the Muslims. Right. Yeah, they're big enough that it's a problem that others are seeing that uh, the Arabs are starting to unite, and that is a problem. It's about 6.30. At this point, the Uma has been successful to convert all the um, Mecca to Islam. So they've, they ran from Mecca previously. They were pushed out by the Umayyads, but now that they are a rising force, they are able to start to convert these tribes and you get the Umayyads are now a caliphate. And Exactly. And then previously they actually sent, there was a battle between around a thousand non-Muslims and around 300 of Muhammad's followers. And surprisingly, they were able to defeat this force. That really broke a lot of the power. And that was one of the famous, one of the first, like the first, first triumph of Islam, as they called it around this period, because they used good tactics and, and they had, basically it was just a well formulated battle on the Muslims hands to defeat this force that outnumbered the nearly three to one. So at this point it's uh, by 629, Muhammad has uh, united the Arabs, the Meccans and the Umayyads. He's united all of them. And by the time he dies uh, in 632, he has unified the Arabs under Islam. Exactly. And that leads into the next phase as once he dies, you know, his successor Abu Bakr became the, the next, you know, became the, the next caliph in Muhammad's place. And right, literally right this happened, there was a massive rebellion against this called the Rid, which became known as the Ridda Wars between 632 and 633. A lot of different tribes revolted against you know, the, the new Islamic regime or system. And for about a year, this war raged, but eventually, basically, the, at the time, it was called the Rashidun Caliphate as well. They were able to defeat the, the rebels and bring the, bring the peninsula back under their control. And right. it was with that, finally, that they started thinking about expansion. Okay, we put this down, and, they've, and through the, these, these conflicts and through this, putting this rebellion down, the Muslim armies have gained now some experience. So they or so Abu Bakr is thinking, okay, thinking about expansion. And according to the rec- records I've looked at, Muslim Muslim uh, historians or they don't give a, a reason for this, but we know that in March of 633, he appointed his best general Khalid, Khalid ibn Al Walid to attack the Sasanian Empire. And this kind of picks back up right where we left off, where the, the Persians had finally recovered from all this 
from the war of 602 to 628 and the infighting that followed. So basically, Khalid was sent in with an army of around 18,000. Now, at this period, Muslim armies were primarily, were generally lighter. You know, they had large amounts of cavalry, infantry, but they were not as heavily armored or had the quality of things that the Byzantines or the Sasanian armies had. So in many cases, this would be a big factor of how they would play their play to their strength in this campaign and would try to avoid certain situations where they would put, that would put them at, at a disadvantage. And Khalid would prove to be one of the best generals, I think, in history, if not the period, in the subsequent story that's about to be told. So as I right. mentioned, in March, he, invade, he invaded modern-day Kuwait with an army. And this was one of the southernmost provinces of the Sasanian Empire. So the local go- uh, governor of this area, Hormuzd, he had around 20,000 uh, Sasanian troops under his command. So he moved out to meet this incoming army near uh, Kazima in modern-day Kuwait. So Khalid playing to his strengths. He knew his army was vulnerable. He moved away and threatened the city of Ufaya. The Sasanians forced March to meet him. And as they neared, they then marched back toward Kazima. So finally, the two armies met. But by this point, the Sasanian, the Sasanian force was exhausted from March and countermarch. And this actually leads to the first battle, which became, was interesting, became known as the Battle of the Chains. Now, this is interesting because because the saying is that the Sasanian infantry was chained together to hold the line. Well, there's a lot of, this is kind of an th- example. They don't think they're actually chained together because of translation from, I think, Arabic in, from basically you know, Persian language to Arabic. The translation is like, you know, stuck together. So they don't think they're actually chained together. They think they were just, you know, put in a formation that they could hold the line together. So basically the two armies met and at the first, the, there were duels between the Muslim generals and the Persian generals and the Muslim generals beat them and Hormoz was killed in this duel. So when, so when the battle was joined, initially the Sasanians held them back, but eventually the Sasanian cavalry gave way and the Arab cavalry moved in, basically enveloped the Sasanians and they were basically routed and the, both the Sasanians lost a good portion of their army. So the survivors fled north. Word of this reached the Sasanian court in Tessaphon. So they dispatched another Sassanid army under Karen, moved south, and joined up with the armies of Hormozgan's forces. And this brought Sassanid forces about 40,000 men. And then there are about 20,000 months at this point. And they, the two armies met near the Tigris River again in, a new, in another battle. And in this battle, as was, as was custom for the time, they had opening duels. And again, in this duel, Karen was killed in a duel, and the subsequent battle of Muslims routed the Sasanian army, and they lost around half their force. So, well, the Muslims lost a few thousand. So you're starting to see a trend, trend coming here. You know, they smashed two Persian armies in a matter of months, and then so the, the Sasanians were quite shocked by this. They raised two new armies in 633. One army under Andrzejgarn was sent to Walaja in, in Iraq to intercept the Muslim army. Another army was under Bauman was sent to reinforce him from deeper within the Sasanian heartland. Well, the Sasanians initially had 30,000 men. So Anders Agan thought, I'll wait for Bar, I'll wait for him to arrive to reinforce it so our forces can heavily outnumber the Muslims. Well, so they put themselves in a strong defensive position. When Khalid arrived, he knew he needed to draw them out before the two armies combined, and he really had no chance to defeat an army over twice his, his strength. So what he did was during the night, he sent his cavalry away. 
into the hills. So when the Sasanians saw that, oh, their army is a lot smaller than we thought, so they attacked and they nearly routed the, the Muslims. But then the cavalry came around, the Sasanians from the rear, completely shattering them. And literally, like the classical battle of Cannae, they basically were enveloped and annihilated. And then, so this was kind of another example of Khalid's brilliance. And basically, they were smashed. And now you've had the third army in, less, in this period smashed by the Muslims. You know, and it's interesting is that how the records show, like, you know, before they never were much. Then you have this, they just one victory, two victories, three victories. And of course, to an established empire like the Sadians, that's a little, one, it's, it's very bad on your, on your image. And two, it's also like we're losing our position in this region. <laughs> After these victories, Walid continued to move west and defeated six more Sassan armies between May and November 633. And then after this, he was about ready to move further in, but he was then ordered by um, the, the caliph to move into Syria to fight the Byzantines because around this time, he'd also start sending expeditions into the Byzantine Empire, which is quite interesting. You're sending basically two attacks on two large empires at the exact same time, but they were successful, which is, says a lot. And then literally um, over the next two years on the Sasanian front, the land changed back, basically changed, they think changed hands back and forth. There's not a lot of records of this period. There was one additional battle um, called the Battle of the Bridge, which the Sasanians actually defeated the Muslims. But other than that, it was, it was rather, not a lot is known. We just know that parts of Iraq had changed hands between the two, the two entities. And then moving over to the, the expansion to the Byzantine area, in 634, Caliph Abu Bakr sent another force to attack the Byzantine Empire in modern-day Palestine and Syria. The Muslims sent an initial force which defeated the Ghassanids, if we remember correctly, the Byzantine client, client, Arab clients, you know, at, at, in, at Gaza. And then the Byzantine Emperor Heraclius, seeing that he was facing an invasion, he sent uh, an army to reverse these games. But the general... Uh, this is when Khalid was sent over from the Mesopotamian, over from the Mesopotamian front to fight the Byzantines to reinforce the initial incursions by the other Arab forces. So basically now in June and July of 634, he defeated the Ghassanid forces and then combined Byzantine Ghassanid forces. And then basically you have a period now where you have Jerusalem area, basically between Jerusalem and Antioch or modern, more in upper Syria, this region is starting to change hands. The Muslims did not have the ability to take a lot of the fortified towns, but they were able to take control of the countryside because of their mobility. Eventually, everything came to a head at the Battle of Yarmouk, 636. Basically, what happened is, while this was happening, the Byzantines were gathering armies from both Anatolia and their holdings in the Balkans and Greece. In, in the interim, the Muslims had moved north. They had threatened Damascus. Eventually, they captured Damascus and eventually captured Emesa, another major city in Syria. And then by the time the three Byzantine armies had come together, and they think the, the Byzantines put together around 40,000 troops. So they had then pushed south. The Muslims evacuated um, Emesa and moved south. And eventually, the climactic battle would happen at the Yarmouk River in 636. And this was a very hard-fought battle over the course of six days. And eventually, the Muslims um, proved successful, but very, very, it was a very close battle, and this basically shattered Byzantine power in the Levant. By this point, they Muslim forces eventually took control of the Levant. They then captured Jerusalem a year later, and eventually you have them solidified control, and now you have Roman Egypt and North Africa separated from the other holdings of the Byzantine Empire 
although the Byzantines still were the dominant naval power, so that was in their favor, but they would never again return to these lands. And then that leads back literally simultaneously to the new offensive against assassins in 636. As you said earlier, in 636, uh, the Caliph Umar sent another army into the, into the assassins. And this time, the prominent member of the Sassanian court, his name is Rostam, he put together an army of 70,000 Sassanian troops to finally smash this new Muslim you know, invasion of, the of their Mesopotamian territories. And basically, the two armies would eventually meet in Kufa, or near modern-day Kufa in Iraq, in a place that's called Al-Qadisiyah. And for several months, the two armies negotiated, but eventually they, they, they drew up in a battle lines, and a very hard-fought battle was, was initiated. Now, what's interesting was the Byzantines were defeated at Yarmouk at the, literally at the same time. So the Muslims were able to send thousands of reinforcements to the Sasanian front to bolster their forces. As a result, finally, what broke the back of the, the, Pers or the Persians was on the fourth day of battle, the Muslims sent a surprise attack and it managed to kill Rostam behind, kill Rostam. They were able to recover from this when full might of the Muslim army charged, they, were able, they basically were annihilated. So it's estimated that the Muslims lost around 10,000 men, whereas the Sassanids lost over 25,000. And after this battle, the last major Sasanian force was smashed in, the, in, in Mesopotamia. And in the following year, their capital, Tesaphon, would fall, and the Muslims took control of all the Mesopotamian portions of the Sasanian Empire, pushing them back to the Zagros Mountains, with, with the exception of a few minor holdouts here and there. So pretty amazing that they were able to do this against the two empires that had dominated the region for an inner give or take a thousand, a thousand years, depending on what phase or entity controlled those regions. But they were all either one or the other. So a lot to be said there, and just the fact that the Muslim armaments were not as well equipped or did not have, you know, the quality advantage both of both the Byzantines or the Sasanians, but nonetheless, they really succeed. Yeah, and it was uh, less than 100 years, less than 30 I, years. Exactly, and these initial conquests are all between yeah. 630 and 640. Yeah. You know, so it's literally, yeah, you know, within, within 20 years, they have completely redrawn the map. Now, both empires are still strong. They're not destroyed, but the Byzantines have lost the Levant. The Sasanians have lost Mesopotamia. And that's and this is kind of when you had the first bit of a pausation occur, you know, because they had taken all this. They needed time to solidify their control. And, and one would think that both well, the kind of the boundaries between both empires would calcify, but they wouldn't. It was more temporary. Temporary. And in our next episode, we'll kind of finish these initial conquests with what happened both on the Sassanian front and against the Byzantines in the West, which is also quite miraculous given what they were able to accomplish in from 640 up to around 700. Yeah, there, what the Islamic empire is able to do in such a short amount of time with less resources than everybody else, I'm, the balance of power like is completely just um, turned on its head and uh, i mean the literally the world has changed after you know 630 to war after war after war you, you could say the year 636 was extremely de decisive and that both empires were defeated literally at the same time and the fact yeah. that both empires through a good um, good amount of their you know manpower reserves fight and the Muslims were able to defeat, send two armies simultaneously and defeat them. I mean, yeah. granted, they both 
they suffered a lot of ca- a lot of casualties, not nearly as many as their rivals, but they did suffer a lot. But they, but they were still able to defeat them. So I, that just what is really just surprises me that you know these two empires have been fighting for centuries, they're never able to gain much. And this upstart comes in and just redraws everything immediately. And it's interesting in, his, in history, this tends to happen not often, but every now and then there's just something that completely radically changes the situation of a region or even the world. Oh, absolutely. And that's a, so one of the most interesting things about history is uh, getting to look back at all of these things uh, and be like, how did they not see this coming? But then, I mean, like, there's no way that they would. And that everything over- is clear in retrospect. That is something yeah. that everyone has to understand. At the time, yeah. it's never that way. You know, yeah. and if your main enemy has been this other large power next to you for centuries and the arabs have never really done much of anything besides raids and simple things like that why would you put a lot of effort into it you have the gasolines or you have the lack of it's kind of your buffer states that should suffice and they did tr- try to stop them but even even though even those arab groups were not able to stop the the you know the rashid and caliphate as it moved up you know and one other thing i want to mention everyone this is a very summarized version each of these battles and events we could devote an entire episode or many episodes to just because the complexities and unique stories from the annals from different individuals or what happened and how they happened but for the sake of time and just you know i'd say just ease of transitioning from from event to event you want to kind of give more of a survey approach to this and i'd also want to really want to want to shout out to some of the sources i found some of my previous class academic classes um there are kings and generals on youtube the great courses plus some other sources are great great resources and you know i'd say oases of knowledge of this that you can learn and just better understand this period of time and how it affects today and another important thing is that you have to, if when assessing, oh, why didn't they do this? Why, did, why didn't they do that? As Rachel mentioned, you have to think about how did people think and live at that time versus today? Because that was 1,400 years ago, roughly. So just look how much things have changed in the last century in terms of writing, in terms of mentality, in terms of things. So all these things factor in when you have to analyze history and historical events. Right. Yeah. And a lot of people, some, you know, don't realize uh, that you have to look at it that way to truly understand uh, history at its finest uh, or at its worst. Uh, I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> no, no, exactly. Very well said. And that is 100% the truth in my opinion as well. So, so this, this is going to wrap up our first episode. So in the next episode, we're going to pick up where we left off with the, the next wave of Islamic expansion into the Iraq, into Iran in, and then into Egypt and North Africa, where they would also enjoy heavy success in the next few decades after these initial uh, victories in the 630s up to about 640. So we look forward to talking to you about that on the next time. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Like I said, there's a lot more to explore. We highly recommend you look into some of these different sources, learn for yourself. And in many cases, you can see how the modern situation in the world mirrors where a lot of these things happen and also the culture and socialist society and more i'd say religious you know differentiation that has now occurred because of these events 1400 years ago so it really brings that you say ancient perspective from modern lens looking back right into the forefront you know of what's going on now and also a lot you can you can understand a lot of the situations going on in those regions now to what happened in the past because literally they've just been repeating themselves in different ways again and again and again, which is very unfortunate, but it's just, it's just the way it is as of now. So 
We hope you've enjoyed this episode. We look forward to your feedback. Uh, please send us an email on internationalimmersionpodcast at gmail.com. If you have questions, thoughts, or would like maybe for us to do an episode on something, check out our social media page at, of the same name, International Immersion, for Facebook and Instagram. And Rachel, I just want to thank you very much for, um, for your expertise and your input on this episode. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was, this was fantastic. Awesome. Well, with that, we hope to have you back for part two soon. And with everyone else, this has been another episode of International Immersion. Stay safe, take care. Let's hope this pandemic ends and we will see you on the next one.